this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. listeners this is Brent Sutton welcome to the 79th episode of the practice of learning teams podcast show on today's podcast I conclude my two-part series with Dave East from Crew Fusion Dave continues to share his story of using learning teams in the armed service in Australia and more importantly the shift from accident investigations to event learning so please sit back and enjoy the conclusion of this podcast with Dave East because if people don't connect, they won't buy in. If, if there's no connection, why would they buy in? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're in a very lucky position. Of course, the military has uh, a fantastic, like a fantastic support system uh, within it, right? So for us, our why, we get a, well, we get simple things like we get a, a the RAF news. It's a newspaper that comes out fortnightly. And you can look in that any time, look at the front page and look at us delivering uh, you know, humanitarian aid to to a, a country that's just been affected by a cyclone or a volcano, and you go that that there's our why. That's what that's one piece of what what we do, and that, so that's that that makes it a bit easier. Um, but yeah, when you when you run that little exercise with a small group with a small team, um, yeah, that some of the whys are yeah. I, I've always wanted to join the military. I've always wanted to work around planes. I've always wanted to help people. So the why becomes sort of easy, but digging, if you want to dig into it deeper, it it, it can get complicated because they just hang their hat on an easy one. You know, like I, I, want, I want to march in the Anzac Day. It's, sometimes it's not enough. You, you need more. So, yeah, with these guys, I, I found, <clears throat> if, of course, no matter where you work, you find a mix of people, don't you? Um, yeah, the bell curve. It's yeah. just the normal bell curve. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. You find it with safety people. Yep. There's there's nothing you can't solve with a standard bell curve. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> um I tell you what, so when when we bought um <clears throat> the Air Force already had a system in place that understood conditions. Okay. But they weren't using it. Uh well CSG uh, wasn't wasn't really aware of it because it was an aviation thing. It was a DFSB thing, unfortunately. So we've got in the Air Force, we've got a system, um, what, what do you call them, the pre-works? Um, we call it P-Bed, Pair, Rule of Three. So P-Bed, Plan, Brief, Execute, Debrief. Okay. Pair is um, it's a little notepad that, that they're everywhere within the Air Force, within the military. Um, people, Environment, Actions, Resources, and, and they're your conditions. Okay. It's a little, it's a little notepad with the with the, all these conditions embossed in the background to help you through a list of what can catch you out today. Yeah. Okay. So we call, I call that a little thinking frame. Of course, that's a good name for it. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then the rule of three is, of course, a, a little uh, ID card size, you know, credit card size piece of plastic that we're given, which is the standard traffic light system. Um, if you if you're in the green, you can go to, you can go to work. Um, if you've got more than three conditions out of that out of that pair pad, then you need to stop and talk to management so we can reduce them and, and look at the conditions and 
get to a get to a point where we can work safely. Okay. And that blew their mind <laughs> when when I explained this system to them, like I've been using it for many years as aircrew. It blew their mind. They're like, where have you been all my life? This is amazing stuff. So then we had a point where um of course whenever they whenever someone went out and did a highly a, a critical job or a job that they determined needed um the, the pre-works, the P bed pair rule of three. I'd get together with them and we'd and I'd run run through them. I taught them how to how to do it efficiently, which was great. <clears throat> but then we had to get then we got to a point where we had that uh, that little all right. Do we make this mandatory before every single job? Does it is it directed that we have to do this, or it, you know at what at what what jobs do we do this in what jobs? Um, you know what level of criticality in the job do you need to do these um because once you make them mandatory and i had seen some um, fighter squadrons up in up in amberley made them mandatory and then your pre your pre-works turned into a, a 30 minute to 40 minute to sometimes an hour uh, activity where, where you just had a team standing around um killing time because they weren't they, they'd they'd become they weren't they weren't effective anymore. So that's where you've got to be really careful to Look, make sure that you manage yeah, it correctly. I think it's a challenge because I think there's two components to that that I see in particular. Um, one is who gives permission? Is the system giving permission to the worker that it's okay for them to start, or is it the worker giving the system permission? And and I, I'm always fascinated by this because so much of what we build. We, we use this language about, is it safe to start or safe to s stop? But what's the system got to do with that? Because it's the worker that's going to put Absol his hand up. Absolutely. Hand, hand up. Yeah. And so much of, and now I think about the things that you've talked about, they, they're classic examples. We're asking people to assess or evaluate. And... And in our latest little white paper, Learning from Everyday Work, we actually talked about the fact that very little of these things actually ask people to critically appraise. And what's more important, like if, if you're facing, because no matter what the colour there is, no matter what colour is, there's going to be some residual risk left over. Yes. So isn't appraisal more important than evaluation? Because um, the thing that I always struggle with is we talk about you can't see human error coming, which, which I absolutely agree with, because you only know once it's become an error that it was an error. But how do we support workers in particular to see when things start to shift away from their normal state? And what type of skill do we need to be able to see that? And, and the language that we use, we, we, talk, we call it... Um, uh, critical thinking skills mm -hmm. to know when something starts to shift away from you know what it's expected state or what you think it should be and then have that capacity to stand back and ask why versus what we talked about before about a lot of our systems are asking people what and how and when and who yeah it's um <clears throat> it's another one of those uh those interesting questions, as it, that, that interesting point. What at what point do you do that? It is it is very interesting. Uh, I used to 
I, I used to say that a lot. You can you can do this PBED pair rule of three um, at, at at any time during during your activity. You're all very smart people. You've been trained. You know your job. You are comp you are you are competent at it, and you will gain more experience, and you will get better at it. You have everyone has a voice. You all have the ability to put your hand up and say, "Hey, look, um, this is something we need to look at." Yeah, yeah and if you see the value in it, you'll actually use it. Absolutely, yeah. If you don't see the value in it, yep, you're unlikely to engage, and unless there is a a team culture or a tribal culture that you do, if that makes sense, you get those two those those two components come together. In, in your yes. case, in the military, it's quite hierarchical because if you don't, then that's actually something that could you know be counted against you within your career. No, no, yeah, to a point. Yeah, um, it, it, we are very much a uh, an organisation where um, yes, I talked about rank before, but we are all empowered to put up our hands if we see a problem. Hundred percent. Right. So, it's so, not... so what's the difference between a mandate and an order in the military? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, um, I can't remember the last time I was given an order in in the air force, which is good. We've got certain rules to follow, and everyone knows that we know, you know, that we know to do our job, and we are expected to do it to the to the best of our ability. And if we can't, then we put our hand up and and you know ask for help. And that's it's, it's a great organisation for that. Yeah. Um, I can't say all military services are the same. <laughs> but, uh... No, and look, and I think once again, I think if we think about Australia, New Zealand, if we think about um, our um, brotherhood that we have. Our, our military services really provide a lot of support around the Pacific and yes. around supporting fisheries and supporting... It's not about a pure defensive capacity. There's a lot of it is around support capacity. Uh, look, most of the work I've done, uh, like real work, like when I, when I say real work, I mean actually out there helping people has been humanitarian aid. Yeah, I was going to say right. here to, to the South Pacific, to the Philippines, to the Indo region. It's it's and it's great. Yeah. If we had if we had a real war over here, we'd have to try and arm our sheep, and we probably don't have bullets to go round. So, can we please not get into a discussion about New Zealand military <laughs> decisions <laughs> well, over the years? <laughs> I know it it's just continues to be underinvested. Oh, look, I've I've worked with. Uh, with the Kiwis uh, plenty and I love working with you guys except for the fact the only thing I don't like about working with New Zealanders is the fact that your bags are 10 times heavier than our equivalent bag size I don't know what your army guys jam into their bags but they are so heavy but uh, yeah as far as professionalism goes you I, guys I, I think they have to pack a lot more because they don't know what's going to happen next <laughs> <laughs> is that right no that's good because yeah, we've, we've got poor logistics so you try and take more on board <laughs> Uh, I can tell so many stories around that, but uh, probably not the best. No, that's right. That that's right. But look, our, our services do an amazing job, and it's a credit to them. And I'd like to thank them for their service. Yeah, so do I. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're just incredible. Yeah. So, so for you, um, this I suppose this 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 awakening, and and then seeing uh, seeing it live and seeing it in action. And, and seeing how do do you think that it's actually helped people in their own personal life as well? Some of these things that you've done, hundred percent, yes. Um, I, I I could see that immediately <clears throat> as well. 
Uh, like I mentioned before, I also um, like the human factors program itself is is quite good. It's got a lot of valuable information. Um, I was concerned as to whether it was the right training to provide them. Um, uh, but yeah, that's that's what we sort of uh, not not what we had to work with, like that we were told to to provide that. Um, it was there was definitely flexibility in it, but that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do a lot of research. Um, into the best product to provide these this team so that they could improve. Um, the, the effectiveness of it, to answer your question, it's <clears throat> the... When, when we delivered, um, when we added psychological safety and emotional intelligence and active listening, those sort of concepts into the course. They weren't they weren't part of the human factors portion, but um they were essential. You could you couldn't do A without B. Um that that changed a lot of lives. To like I had to like I said, we had to we had to train the entire support force. Some of these people are literally working in high the, the HRAs, a high reliability organizations daily. And some some of them were chefs. And I'm not saying a kitchen isn't dangerous because a kitchen in a mess is dangerous. It can be a dangerous place. Some of them are physical training instructors, and I, I struggled with okay, how do I how do I train these people? Like what 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 can I provide them? Because they're all in the same classroom together. Um, and when it came to these human performance yeah, topics like like the the EQ and, and psychological safety, it blew their minds. They were like, yes, this is. This is this is something that I wish I learned when when I was in my twenties. Is is a fairly common sort of feedback that we'd get because it's so it's, it is vitally important. And um, uh, as a shameless plug, that's why uh, that's also why I've developed uh, my my own business, Crew Fusion, because I've realised uh, the benefit that all of these topics have um, for any organisation. It doesn't matter who you are, where you work, so long as you've got a brain and a, and a, and um, you're a human. It, this stuff is amazing and, and it works for everyone. And that's why it's great that this community is doing what it is doing because it, it changes lives. And, and I think the language I use, Dave, is that I say to people, you know, curiosity is king. And curiosity is something that we have an abundance of as a child. And it either got beaten out of us, and I don't mean beaten as in literal, but it got beaten out of us because of rules and schools and everything else. But that curiosity is something that has just remained um, dormant. It's there. It's always there. And I, and I think what you're saying is that by doing this, we've simply brought that curiosity back into the front of the mind again. Yeah. Back, back to life. And isn't that just amazing, just what, how curiosity can, can do so much? I know. It's amazing. And there's, there's just an endless amount of information. If you find your, your subjects and your topics and your genre that you like, there is so much information out there for it. Yeah. And... Uh, and and the person you became um, was because of that curiosity. So, so I think for me, curiosity is something that our brain sees as being a very positive state because that, that was part of our key, you know, some of that learning type thing, that, that experimenting, even though sometimes it ended up in trauma when we're told not to touch something, and we did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, that's, but, but that curiosity is not something we got from our – it was not nurture. It was from nature. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we why don't we look at these things that we get from nature 
and then leverage them into, and, and I think that's what you're trying, that's what you've been doing is actually just bringing those things to life. Yes. Rather than trying to rewire someone to think differently. You just use it the best of what they've got, and and, so, and we talk about we get we try and get people to look at things through a different lens rather than their own lens, because they can look yeah. it through a different set of eyes. That's what allows them to reflect. And that isn't that the beauty of getting a group together? So obviously you Absolutely. get a different personalities, different job roles, yep. and you start talking about each other. And correct because yes, it's not so it's not right nor wrong. And I've just I've just been writing an article for Jeffrey Luff at the Safety Differently Forum, and and, and it's called um, "People Aligned to People Aligned to Stories, Not to Numbers." Story, yeah, the storytelling. Yeah. I don't care about maths. Absolutely, <laughs> storytelling is where it's at. Absolutely, that's for it's sure. The stories that, <laughs> because because even if the story is totally against our belief, there'll be something in that story. That will stick with us over time. Yes. Yep. It's all about, uh, you can go into the neural pathways, but it, yeah, if you're uh, fascinating these neural pathways in some way, shape, or form, you will remember portion, a portion of that story or all of it 100%. Absolutely. Because, yes. yes. and, and that, and once again, that's why I keep going back to it. it's curiosity that helps us to, to do that. And the problem is our systems, our, our formal systems, aren't good at curiosity. Very linear, linear aren't they? Yeah, well, well, they they try to they they try to use continuous improvement as a feedback loop. <laughs> I try, you know, but but the fact is they are linear by nature, and, and that's why, um, regardless of what we do, if there is not a reflective capacity, so we we talk about it, we call it you know, um, learn, do, and challenge. It is the challenge element that helps us to reflect rather than just accepting, because a lot of what we do, there's a bit of learning, there's a bit of doing, and it just becomes innate in us. Makes sense? Because learning has to be intentional. So I think a lot of what we fail to do is we fail to challenge that, which is that, that deeper reflective process. We just tend to accept. And that's why, uh, that's, a, that's a lesson that took me a little while to learn, actually. Um, when I talked about the PBED, the Plan, Brief, Execute, Debrief, um, uh, I was talking a lot about the plan, brief, execute, and not talking as much as I should have been about the debrief. And it took it didn't take me too long, but I, we weren't doing the debrief as well as it should have been done. And that's actually what I told them, Brent. I said, can you guys come in and tell me a story of what just happened? Yeah. And whether it was a successful work event or whether there was some sort of a failure along the line, let's just, talk, let's just tell the story. And that was gold because uh, it... It generated conversation and it generated a lot of learning. It was great. And we try and um, suggest to people that um, to we are really doing that debrief to try and avoid the judgment element of success and failure because because that moves into judgment because you're asking them to then you know make some decision making around that. Whereas what we talk to them about is trying just to get them to articulate um, where they had to make do. And, and making do, I think, sits very well within the vernacular of Australians and Kiwis. Probably yes. less meaning to North America. Because every day we're making frigging do. And I, I find people, it's far easier for them to share with you where they have to make do than, than ask them to say what went well, what didn't go well. So I, I could get the same group and ask those two things and get 
and get much deeper context from make do rather than saying what we want, what didn't go well. Because straight away you're asking people to move from that creative mind into the logic mind. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Try it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting little experiment. It's, yeah, I love it. It's really cool. Everyone knows you could have to explain what make do means. Like I said at the beginning, CSG had a very can-do attitude, right? They, it, they had to do their job. And because that's it's an Australian culture, it's a New Zealand culture as well, that's that's what we do. A lot of uh, some of the guys and girls sort of said, "Hey, uh, you come up with this p-bed pair rule of three. We've got more than three thing, three things, so we have to stop work." It's like, okay, we don't have to stop work. This is just a pause. This is a pause. We don't, that doesn't mean we don't carry out the task. We still have to uh, get things done. We still have to take care of business. This task needs to be completed. How do we do it safely? And it took a long time to get over that. And that, and when these this curiosity and these stories come out about those things then they'd be like, okay, now I understand what I actually need to do to make this happen. So, yeah. Um, uh, and I think as well from what you were saying with that debrief and the, the way you do it, um, uh, when I um, – and this was oh, this was literally just being one step ahead of uh, the next person because as I was listening to these podcasts and, oh, learning teams, what's that? Oh, psychological safety, what's that? Um it was a great, like like you said, there's so much information out there and being able to learn it in that manner was fantastic. Um, we, we we rolled a, a little bit of the learning team's concept into the debrief. Let's not let's not solutionize yet. Let's just talk about what happened. Let's bring the stories out. Um, and uh, and that, that just worked so well. It, it just blew, it blew my mind. It blew their minds. And the team that I was working with, we just, it, it was it was so fun. It, it, was, it really was a, a good time. Well, you can actually thank Einstein for that. Thank you. Thank you, Einstein. Yeah, because he said if you spend 95% understanding the problem, you spend 5% solving. There you go. Yes, that's, it is so true. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I wonder <laughs> in society now, in particular, that we jump too much to fix. Because the problem with fixing is that fixing doesn't create sustainable change. And recently I've been doing some work in some, some areas around psychological safety um, which is always, you know, fascinating, particularly around aggression. And the organisation kept having this fixed mind about how do we, you know, how do we stop, you know, ag- aggression events? Or, you know, um, we're having to constantly put our people back on um, training around de-escalation. And, I, and I, I just keep saying to them, in the absence of fixing, what are you left with? And, and I said, you're, all you're left with is better understanding. So why do, because I, I think people to get disconnected between the notion of learning and improving. So humans through the notion of learning can improve and change their schema. You absolutely can. But yes. the system can't. So, so the system needs an improvement. So when I, a lot of learning teams that, that we get involved in, we separate the difference between them what people have learnt and what the organisation has learnt versus what the improvements are. And I, and I know that's sometimes uncomfortable for people because learning and improving are two different things. And what it's forced people to do is to basically say that the improvements are system-focused, the learnings are people-focused. I like that. That's really cool. One thing... Uh, and I think this goes for any organisation. One thing we really like to do is when you, um, you know, like when you when you carry out a, a risk assessment for any activity, 
you get a group of people together who know what they're talking about, hopefully, and you come up with uh, some of the some of the things that can go, can go right and some of the things that may go wrong, and you try to learn the best from them. Uh, a lot of the things uh, we would get together as our team, uh, have a little huddle from time to time and say, right, what have we learned in the past three or four courses that we can put back into policy? Um, and when I say policy, I mean, you know, the, the military runs on publications. So Absolutely. It's all um, system. Yeah. 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 It's systems based. Um, what can we what can we implement back into into this? So, so when people read uh, a procedure, because of course we have our procedures as well, what can they learn from us that we're doing right now? And we did. We put a lot of uh, put a lot of uh, work back into that to make sure that uh, others can learn from what we were learning as well. And uh, that's a fantastic opportunity as well. Absolutely. And, and look, and we must have systems. We we need to do all those things. They're they're, they're so important. You know, we need those things. But the, I, I, because you know, people use the language of safety one, safety two, and and yeah. and it slightly aggravates me because it, it infers that it's a hierarchy or it infers it's a departure, and and I just like to say to them that you know the difference here is that in safety one, we are expecting the people to conform to the system. In safety two, we're actually wanting the system to listen to the people. Like I said. Um... Once we got over that management hurdle with a few of the few of the naysayers, yes, that's that's what we got. We got we got them listening to the people, and uh, it was great. And being and being able to go to um, like I had access to my commanding officer, like I, I could you know, just knock on his door and say, "Good morning, sir. Um, have you got five minutes for a bit of a chat? Because this is what we've learned over the last uh, last period." And um, it was that was an amazing opportunity as well because he had a lot of influence, and he would he would. He would push up and push down. Right. And what convinced him? Was it the stories that convinced him or was it the numbers? No, definitely stories. 100%. Definitely stories. Yeah, he didn't care about numbers. Yeah. He, didn't care about... <laughs> nope. He, and he was good. Yeah, he, he, he understood it. He got it straight away, which was amazing. Yeah. It, it is because, because, you know, once again, it's that whole notion that we keep fixating on measurement. I, t- I tell you what, that's, uh, that's always been a quandary of mine if you're uh, being air crew. Um, if you want to entertain a pilot, you put a graph up on a PowerPoint and they will sit there and stare at it all day long. They love it, right? But uh, yeah, no, you, you can you can certainly show some sort of graph. You can almost make up whatever you wanted, right? You know, that, that's what they say. 85% of the statistics are made up on the spot. Um, <laughs> um, you can, you well, can show yeah, look, it's just, it's just, everyone learns differently. I mean, yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, um, it's no different, you know, um, in, in hop learning teams, we used to, you know, the blue line, black line, um, as a way of demonstrating things, um, but at the end of the day, it's just a graphical representation of it. And, and I think the challenge here is um, how do we bring, like the stuff that you're doing, it's it's how do you then make that the, that common cultural practice so that it just becomes an embedded and sustainable part of what we do every day with actually not having to think about it as a system mm-hmm. because it's just a part of how we actually go about yep. doing things. It's just normal work. That's what, so, that's what we talked about at the beginning. It's all about keeping that plant watered, isn't it? Absolutely. So it becomes an art form rather than a, that, than a skill. Yeah. 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 And, and that way, particularly where um, uh, as work groups change, those people coming with that work group will then basically see what that cultural practice is and they'll basically um, become part of it. 
Because ultimately we all conform, if that makes sense. We do. You either conform or you get out. Especially if in you the military. Got this, yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I know we hate the bullying word, but a lot of um, conforming to cultural practice is a form of passive bullying. Because it, it's, this is how we do things around here. And you either become part of how we do things around here or you feel isolated. Right, and then you're not, you're not innovating anymore, are you? That's, that's correct. So, uh, you know, is that, is that a form of passive bullying? I, I, it's, it's an interesting conversation, yeah. but, but I would say to people is um, people will either conform or they'll get out. So you can take someone from an amazing environment and you would have seen that people leave the military going into civvy. Yeah. It's hard sometimes because they've come from this really well-structured environment with lots of support into something where there's just nothing and you've got to make it up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it can be, it can be quite tricky, yeah. At, at, and that's that same thing. So you either, you either join them <laughs> or you go somewhere else. And, and that, that's, that's the problem. But what you're doing is building a really strong cultural practice, which is amazing. Yeah, and we had a lot of fun doing it. At the same time, it was amazing. Yeah. And did, did you were you looking for also those people that get, that could then carry that through for others? So, so we talk about you know like coaching and mentoring, but I always talk about you know you got to find those people within the organisation that can then go on to coach and mentor others. Yeah, long story short, absolutely. We found uh, quite a few people to, to continue watering that tree, to continue that uh, coaching and mentoring thing and the training. Uh, like I said, I I, uh, I in the two years I was out, I was only able to train less than, I think it was less than 1,000, it was only 800 people in an organisation with fifteen or 1,600 of uh, support workers. Um, you definitely need that that, content, that that throughput and that continuance. Um when it comes to passion, um, I, I, I shared uh, all these podcasts with so many of my friends. Uh, some of the innovators picked them up and went, yep, we'll have a look at them 100%. And they they like they ring me up and say, Dave, we love what, we love these podcasts. They're awesome. They're awesome. And other guys are like, no, I haven't listened to them yet. Um, that's the hard part. It's, you've got you've to be passionate if you want to share these messages and really, uh, and really make it work and be able to tell those stories so that they do make that strong organizational change. Um, and that's, that's, that is a hard thing to, to find those people, isn't it? I'm sure you find the oh, same look, it's, your, it's always a challenge. And the, the good thing is you don't actually have to find many. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you've got to, uh, I suppose, nurture them and um, allow them to flourish, but for them to flourish in their own way, not try and become a clone of yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's, that's that whole part of it. Um I do quite a bit. We we call it um, we call it cohort coaching, where we get groups of people together on on their journey, and we get them to share you know their experiences, and we give them some things around reflection. But they say to us, you know, what model are you using to do this? And I said, yeah, it's called a freaking learning team. We get together, you share your stories on where you're at. We explore what are some of the barriers to that. Okay, we we focus on the problem. In the situation, um, you guys self-diagnose, come up with a whole lot of different interesting suggestions, and our job is to facilitate that for the next session. Yeah, yeah. And they said, they said, is that it? They go, yeah, that is it. 
because <laughs> none of us are there to give you the answers. With the to... <laughs> you're paying us way more for that. <laughs> I, I know. Well, but the, but this is the crazy thing because ultimately, and, and this sometimes frustrates me. I had someone the other day saying, you know, um, we want you to train all these people, and I said, I don't do training. What do you mean you don't training? Well, I got no idea. I said, but what we'll do is that we'll run a series of learning teams and understand with your people what are things that they're having to face to try and embed this into, into what they do in everyday work. And that through that journey, we'll be able to give them ways of, of building that knowledge component, so things like podcasts and other things, mm-hmm. because everyone's in their own everyone's on their own journey. We call it like a roadmap. And, and we've got to scaffold people on that journey. And a lot of training doesn't allow us to scaffold because training, all, all training has a learning intention or learning outcomes. Um, seldom do we evaluate a person's prior knowledge and information as to where they sit. You just expect them to sit in a classroom and yeah, listen or yeah, and everyone will learn at a different pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think you know. The, so, so what we say to them is, you know, it's a journey. Okay, uh, we need to be able to clearly articulate and describe what good looks like. Otherwise, how can people aspire? But if you know where you're at and you know where you need to be then going on that journey and being able to reflect back and see how you've progressed is what supports you to keep moving. And there's a story in that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because so many people, you know, um, the best thing about a learning team is its organic nature. The worst thing about a learning team, it's its organic nature. (laughs) So if you have come from a highly structured environment, where you followed lots of process, then a learning team feels very foreign. Mm-hmm. And that's where I find it comes down to the uh, experience and the skill of the facilitator or the facilitators running that learning team to help help uh, cage that, to make sure that it, uh, it doesn't go off track and to make sure that you stay uh, with the important things and get the required outcome that you need. Absolutely, because we're trying to bridge people. I, I call it, you're going from cage teams to free range. Oh, very nice. Yes. And and when you go free range, everyone goes running out and they keep looking around. They don't know where the hell they are. <laughs> and they end up all running back in the cage because the cage seems really comfortable. I don't know if you've seen that analogy before. I have, and, yes. And, and I see that, and I particularly see that in this end of the world where people have been highly experienced in running ICAM investigations and then being asked to run a learning team. And it seems really scary to them. And what they'll do is they'll just default back to comfort because that's what's always worked for them in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. of course, by doing that, they then blame the system. When, when in it, and, and I don't blame the person because the system wasn't there to support them, the fact that they're having to move from cage to free range. Yes, yeah. And, and I can't tell you how long that takes for an individual because... We're individuals. Yeah, yeah well, I'd like to say we're all broken individuals on a good yeah. day. Yeah. 
We've all got our things, Brent. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So look, I would um, uh, thank you for sharing your journey today, and and I'd like to reconnect with you on some other stories as well. And um, because it's it's always fascinating the fact that the more stories we can share, and the fact that everyone goes on a different journey and for different needs, is really powerful for the community and what and what they do. Mate, thank you. Uh, and like I said uh, as well, uh, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, you, you guys that are that are doing these podcasts and putting out these uh, the white papers and the and the websites, uh, you, you're helping so many communities out there, and we really appreciate it. So thank you very very much for that. Thank you, listeners, for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and be part of the community practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. Welcome to Safety Differently Merchandise, the premium sponsor for the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Our curated lines of inspirational clothing, headwear, cups, stationery and more, at Safety Differently Merchandise, is befitting of your Safety Differently journey. I am Arthur Taylor, Chief Designer. I have spent decades on Savile Row, and honored to bring my talents, for all fine purveyors and devotees of. Hop. Learning Teams. Safety Differently. Safety 2. And the New View. Please visit the store and purchase our fine goods at safetydifferentlymerch.com. And now, back to the show.